Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Dr. Grant Otsuki, a lecturer in cultural anthropology at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand and a socio-cultural anthropologist with an interest in science and technology. In today's episode, we talk to Grant about interface technology, augmented reality, smart toilets and robots in Japan. We talk about technology as relationships that people have with the outer world. We talk about how the mutual interactivity between people, technology and environment inherent in mainstream Japanese culture shapes technology design. We talk about respectful service, ethics, class and power dynamics between engineers, technology and consumers. We talk about what kind of non-slave relationships can emerge between humans and robots and how people don't value robots for the things they think they value them. And lastly, we talk about the Japanese tech community in relationship to the world and how to look at studying anthropology as a means to manifest whatever fuels one interest in the world. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome everyone. Today we're talking to Dr. Grant from Victoria University. How are you today? Very good. It's actually really great to have you on the show. Me and Karina are both so excited. Um, Our first question is one we ask everyone, and that is, what is technology to you? Okay. So technology is a huge word, I think. But in my mind, like the broadest definition is just that it's like a relationship in kind of a material or concrete form. So just like any other relationship, I think it's something that helps connect a person to something else or someone else. And, you know, it's usually something that they might not otherwise be able to connect with. So, you know, technology is, you know, kind of a relationship in, in, in this sort of material form. And also it lets them connect in particular ways that lets them do certain things and not others when they're, you know, interacting with, you know, the world or with other people. So I think of it, you know, very much in terms of the relationships. Now that you've kind of um, talked about technology, um, I want to know more about you. Like, um, what are you interested in and how did you start your career into anthropology? Okay, well, right now I'm a lecturer in uh, cultural anthropology at Victoria University of Wellington. And before that, I was in a place in Japan called the University of Tsukuba and also Canada for a long time before that. Um, so I've always been a bit interested in science and technology, uh, but over the years I've kind of changed how I think about it. So I've been interested in it in different ways. You know, everybody sort of comes out of high school thinking they're going to do one thing and their plans get messed up along the way. So I started out during high school thinking that I was going to be a physicist and that I was going to answer these big questions about the universe. But then I realized, you know, I'm kind of bad at math. And uh, that I was still like interested in physics, but I wasn't really interested in doing physics. So after that, I ended up in an interdisciplinary field called science and technology studies, which is basically um, history and sociology and anthropology and philosophy of science and technology. And, you know, 
that's where you think about ways that science and society interact with each other, related with each, with each other. And then from there, I sort of jumped ship again to anthropology. And then, like I was thinking about, you know, do I really want to spend my time in an archive, looking at old documents, or do I want to talk to uh, people who are doing things I think are interesting? And I decided people were more interesting, so I ended up in anthropology. Um, and since then, my research has focused a lot on technology in Japan, and I'm specifically curious about interface technologies. And these can be sort of things like virtual reality headsets or like controls for robots, or, you know, they can be robots themselves, right? They think in Japan about interfaces very broadly. So like in the same way that I think of technology sort of broadly as relationships, I'm interested in how the engineers and scientists that make these interface technologies, how do they think about relationships and how do they build that, uh, build those ideas into technology? How, how do the engineers do that? How do they look at um, rela um, relationality between um, people and technology and in using those interfaces? The way they think about it is... I don't think they think about it in terms of like what's what they think is natural mm -hmm. to a person. Right? What does a human being expect when they're interacting with another person mm -hmm. or with their environment? Right. What kinds of things have they built habits around mm -hmm. and what are they used to? So what feels natural for them? And this idea of what's natural to a human being becomes a model for them to think about how an interface should work or how it should feel to the person using it. Right? Mm. Now, I think, you know, what feels natural to different people differs a lot from, uh, differs a lot by time and place. So if we think about sort of Japan specifically, then I think we start to see a few things, right? So um, the technologies that they're developing are like these virtual reality things. But uh, I thought I'd talk about the augmented reality systems that they're developing, right? So these are like a goggles mm -hmm. or glasses that you can put on and there's a computer in them and then they can overlay graphics or something. So Google had something like this mm -hmm. called Google Glass a few years ago. But then there are games like Pokemon Go mm -hmm. that kind of do this on your smartphone too. So they kind of blend together things you see in the real world and computer graphics, right? Mm -hmm. Now, for them, I think like an AR system like this ideally should feel like you're not using it at all, right? You want it to be comfortable to wear mm -hmm. and you want it to not look too strange. And I think this was one of the things that sort of yeah. got in the way of Google Glass, yeah. right? That mm -hmm. it was kind of like very obvious that people were wearing it and that mm -hmm. made people around uh, Google Glass users sort of uncomfortable. So you want something that, you know, looks natural, right? And feels natural, right? And you'd want that information that it gives you to be easy to understand, right? Very mm -hmm. intuitive. So these are sort of the baseline requirements of thinking about an AR system, right? So in Japan, the people I worked with, these engineers, they want to make these intuitive systems. Right? They want to make things that feel natural and that they're very easy to use. And they want them, you know, they want them to be so easy to use that you just kind of forget you're using them. Mm. Right. Now, the, the interesting thing about what they're doing is not only that do you want to have them have, do they want these systems to be easy to use? They want them to do things to you 
without you being aware of them. Okay. Like what type of things? So, um, like, so one of their examples that they like is you're wearing, you have some person wearing this AR system, these AR glasses, mm -hmm. right? And they're walking along a street and say, you know, this AR system, maybe it has sensors on it too. So it kind of knows what's around you. And then, uh, so the scenario they imagine is what happens if somebody on a motorcycle or like a bike goes out of control behind you and is headed towards you right? mm -hmm. and you don't see it. Mm -hmm. right? Maybe you're wearing earphones, so you don't hear it either. Right? But maybe your glasses can detect it. When they're thinking about what could the glasses do to help you, they think, okay, it could do one thing. It could like flash you know, a warning sign on your glasses, you know, something big and red and say, look out, there's a bike coming. Mm -hmm so that you know to step out of the way. And I think that's one way to keep you safe. But the engineers of, uh, that I worked with want the glasses to do something else. So they'll, they think about things like, well, maybe we can alter what the person sees through the glasses so mm -hmm. that it feels like, you know, they'll kind of naturally want to step out of the way, right? So maybe instead of, maybe there's a smooth sidewalk in front of them, but we show, we project like, bumps or cracks in the sidewalk so the person just sort of unthinkingly tries to avoid them and in doing that sort of steps out of the way of the bike right mm -hmm. or one thing that they're actually developing is they have another interface which affects a person's sense of balance and you mm -hmm. can activate this and it makes you feel off balance and then you sort of step out of step yeah. to one side yeah. or something like that right so they're thinking okay maybe we can use something like that mm -hmm. but the point is that the glasses could make you do something and you don't even yeah. you know you yeah. may not even realize you're doing it yes but the effect is yeah. that you know you're you're getting you're out of the way yeah you avoid the injury so yeah. the glasses are doing something like trying to imagine or mm -hmm. understand what you would want to do if you knew what were happening yeah and then making you do it without you realizing yeah. what's happened, mm -hmm. right? And so they, they're kind of showing you an illusion. Yes. They talk about illusions a lot, but they're yeah. showing the person wearing these glasses an illusion that they mistake for the real world. And, but, mm -hmm. you know, by believing in this illusion, you end up doing something that's beneficial to yeah. you. So, I mean, what these two things say, uh, tell me is, is something about how they look at that relationship between that technology and that person, right? Because... Mm -hmm. On one side, that technology, they see it as part of the identity of that person, not like a singular separated entity. Mm -hmm. Because if you are, that when the normal becomes normal is when it is such a part of you that it's become, it becomes like normalized completely, yeah. right? Whereas if it's a device that it's separated from you and it flashes you warning signs and it's definitely a separate identity that exists there outside of your own normality, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's 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 absolutely right. right. So they they also have these interesting ways about thinking about the body. Right. Mm -hmm. yes. So who's in control of the body? Exactly. Right? Mm -hmm. Or what does it mean to do something intentionally? Right? And they have these theories about how you know intention 
you know, free will are sort of illusions themselves. Like mm -hmm. people believe they're doing something, but actually it's more of a reaction based on the surroundings, the stimulus that people get from their surroundings. And also this means that, you know, intention isn't something that sort of lives inside your head yeah. and that you express yeah. to the outer world, but it's sort of produced through these sort of feedback relationships mm -hmm. between the person yeah. and their the surroundings. Yeah. Blurs the boundaries yeah. of where the body ends and uh, where the environment begins. And it makes it very easy then to think of a technology as something that sort of slips into that relationship and becomes part of this loop between the surroundings and the environment, well, surroundings and environment and the person themselves. Mm -hmm. Would this be something specific to Japan um, and the way they view identity? Um, I think that, like I tend to think of things as having, uh, well, some things as, existing on like a range of things like there are constraints over what people can do but within those constraints there can be a lot of variety i think there are certain things that are emphasized in japanese society that aren't necessarily as emphasized say you know mm -hmm. in, in various places in the west and i think one of these things is this idea of of not seamlessness or boundaryless boundarylessness <laughs> but kind of like a a mutual interactivity between mm -hmm. people and between people in their surroundings or between people and technology yeah. that uh, is is a, made a lot more explicit and made more um, that feels more valuable for people to have in uh, sort of mainstream Japanese society than say you know in New Zealand yeah. or other yes. places yes. and that's not to say it doesn't exist in other places but that just it sort of maybe ranked lower compared yeah. to some other things, some other ways of relating. So would you say then that in that culture, the way they view technology, not just the engineers, but actually the people, it's it's quite different from other parts of the world because of that? And I'm on a reference here, like one question that we ask our speakers, although we know it's reductive and maybe it's quite simplistic, is if they think technology is evil, because there's a lot of discourses in media around how technology is evil and how you need to keep your kids away from it. And... Um, so mm -hmm. I was wondering within that context, right, within that special definition of technology and how it in how and that definition of what it is to be a person in that environment, uh, would that mean that their relationship to the concept of technology is also different? What's the best way to answer this? So I don't think technology is evil, um, but I think like any other relationship, there can be evil or there can be damaging or harmful relationships mm -hmm. and there can be positive, beneficial, productive ones. And I think what counts as productive or what counts as destructive um, is not always clear, right? It depends a lot on what other relationships, what other ideas surround, you know, say a technology or say surround a particular relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think that the relationships that sort of cluster around certain kinds of interface technologies in Japan structure this relationship, or structure how people think about bad relationships versus good relationships mm. um, in a very sort of particular and sometimes what looks like a unique way compared yeah. to other places. So how has that informed how the way, how the field of um, interactive technology has developed in Japan versus other markets? Um, well, I think that there's a lot of emphasis on uh, the idea of of comfort mm. 
of the user and i think you know in a in a way that's true of any interface but also this sense of like the user is somebody who should be respected mm-hmm. and that the technology is has to sort of work in a way that demonstrates this respect for the user mm-hmm. um and you know there are very particular ideas about respect that are you know, circulate widely in Japanese society. And I think this idea of respect also sort of transfers on to how people think about technologies. Can you give an example of that? Okay, so this is going to get away from interface technologies mm-hmm. a little bit. <laughs> but I suppose you can think of it as a kind of interface. Um, so I want to talk about toilets. Then. Okay. So in Japan, there are these like high-tech toilets these smart toilets, which, you know, have like an electronic control panel. And you can uh, push a button and one button will flush it and another button will uh, activate a jet to, of water to clean off your body and another one will dry your body. And then, you know, uh, it'll have a sensor. So when you walk in the toilet, the toilet lid will raise mm-hmm. and you can push another button to raise the seat if you don't need it. So there are these amazing toilets. I love these toilets. <laughs> Now, I was in Japan, um, what was it, like two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And the place where I was staying has these toilets, which I thought was great. Right? I felt like very, it felt very luxurious. So um, I use this toilet while I'm there. And every time I walk into the bathroom, it raises its uh, lid as if to say like hello or something, right? And I get back to New Zealand, I get back to Wellington, and I walk into the toilet, and of course it's like a normal toilet. It doesn't react, there's no control panel, right? And I know this, right? I know that that's a normal toilet in New Zealand. But for like just a second, I think like, what's this guy's problem? (laughs) I think like, well, doesn't it know what I'm going to do yeah. and why isn't it reacting to me right yeah. why it, I felt like disrespected mm-hmm. almost which is like a silly thing to to think about a toilet but you know it's just this sort of reflexive reaction right oh so I'm th- sitting there thinking sitting not on the toilet but like you know in my office afterwards and I'm thinking mm-hmm. well so why do I feel this way yeah right. and so you know one thing is if you don't have to touch a toilet you don't really want to touch a toilet. So it's part about cleanliness, right? Mm-hmm. If I can push a button to raise the seat or if it can, you know, raise the lid when I walk in, then I'm very happy with that. You mm-hmm. know, I don't have to touch it. It's great. Now, another part of it is convenience, right? And it's like a very sort of silly convenience. But if I can save like, you know, half a second pushing a button to raise the, you know, toilet seat instead of uh, um, uh, bending over and and raising it myself, then I feel like, you know, I'd saved half a second. Mm -hmm. I can let that go fairly easily. Right. But so what about this feeling of disrespect? What about this feeling of disrespect? So, you know, I I could, I'm going to open the lid. I'm going to open the toilet myself. But I've, you know, I feel like I'm used to it opening already. It should know that I'm going to do that. And, you know, so I go through weird thoughts, like maybe it can, but doesn't want to. <laughs> okay. It'd be kind of annoying. And it's a strange reaction. Right. So I, I'm thinking about this toilet, right? And then I think back a few years. And so a few years ago, there's uh, 
you might remember that there was a, a huge earthquake in Japan mm-hmm. in 2011. Right? Yes. So it was this earthquake and there were these huge tsunamis that came and then there was a nuclear power plant that melted down, right? And I was in Tokyo at the time and it was really chaotic, right? And um, one of the reasons it was so chaotic was, well, the government was worried with these power plants offline and with uh, shutdowns on other nuclear power plants in Japan, that maybe there's not enough power to run Tokyo. Mm -hmm. So um, they instituted rolling blackouts in parts of the city and parts of Tokyo because they didn't know if they have enough supply. So uh, at that time, uh, in the weeks and months after the earthquake and this meltdown, a lot of train stations, a lot of public places in Tokyo shut off their lights so they were, uh, you know, it can often be like super bright if you walk into a train station or a shop. But a lot of places were darkening mm-hmm. uh, their lights to save electricity. And they do things like shut off the escalators. People would have to take the stairs to save electricity. Right? And they also shut off things like smart toilets. Right? You can't, you know, you have to raise the toilet yes. yourself, mm-hmm. uh, raise the lid yourself and, and flush it yourself by hand. Now, um, one of the interesting that things that happened was, um, well, for historical reasons, the power system, the electricity system in eastern Japan, so where Tokyo is, is kind of independent from the system in western Japan. Mm-hmm. So they don't cross over, uh, the supplies are independent, and they can't really share electricity between those two halves of the country, um, which was really uh, a problem. It became a problem around that time when they're worried about running out of power. Right. But the thing is, um, when these meltdowns happen, then people in Western Japan, in places like Osaka, were also shutting off their lights and they were also shutting off their smart toilets. Right. And I don't think saving electricity is a bad thing. But, you know, if they shut off these things in Osaka, it's not going to help them with the supply problems in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Right. So you think, why were they shut off? And I think it comes down to this idea of respect, right, in relationships and in technologies, right? Mm-hmm. So this was a moment when you had thousands of people who had just been killed. And, you know, a lot more people than that were homeless. Right? And these people needed to be shown respect. And it felt almost contradictory to sort of expect an ordinary amount of respect for yourself when this like huge disaster had just occurred and all of these other people needed help, right? Um, so the, the mood that sort of caught the country was this kind of self-restraint. They talked about it as a self-restraint. So they started canceling big celebrations and events. Mm-hmm. And part of it, uh, you know, it didn't feel right to sort of be happy or be exuberant when all this stuff had just happened. And I think it was part of this that people started shutting off the toilets, right? Now, if you think of what a toilet, a smart toilet ordinarily does as this sort of sign of respect, like I'm going to, I know what you need, and I show you respect by uh, giving it to you without you having to ask, right? Without you needing to realize that, you know, you Mm -hmm. need to do this. You know, if you think about the ordinary relationship with the toilet as that kind of respectful relationship, then it sort of makes sense in a way that you sort of shut them off when this these other people need that attention and they like sort of need this care and need this uh, need this respect, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
it, it was kind of the way, like it, I think it felt inappropriate for people to have these machines sort of respecting them yeah. when really their attention needed to be somewhere else. Now, it's not as though a toilet was going to help somebody in, you know, who was hit by the disaster, but the sense that one's, you know, you are benefiting while all these other people are sort of yeah. in harm's way, I think felt very uncomfortable to people. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think it was an explicit thought that anybody mm. had when they turned off their smart toilets, but I think they did have this feeling that, you know, it just doesn't feel right yeah. at this yeah. time to interact with this technology. Uh, one of these relationships mm. that, you know, so the technology sort of reinforces or feeds back into, and you can see sort of how it's part of or adjacent to or or um, like entangled with all of these other relationships that don't necessarily have to do with technology exactly, but sort of activate these same values in yes, people. Yes, yes. I was wondering while you were talking that um, how does this attitude of respect connect to the power and agency that normally ex exists and is implied between engineers that build products and people that use them? Because in the Western culture, this relationship of um, agency and power between the companies that produces up something, a piece of technology and a user, implies um, a certain um, power on behalf of the company to kind of um, um, understand how a product works and just put it in front of the user, assuming they would use it. Whereas listening to you talking about that, that relationship of respect, for me, it's almost like it's the opposite it puts the company or the one that creates in a position of um, serving the other, which turns the power back uh, to the person that you're building something for. Mm. I think, um, like, in a sense, you're right, right? Like, companies, I imagine, and at least for the researchers that I worked with, mm -hmm. they think of themselves as sort of, what can we do to make somebody's life better? Right? What can we do to sort of, you know, be of service to others. Yeah. And this, you know, pops up in how people talk about robots yes. that yes. work with small yeah. children yeah. or with the elderly or with technologies, you know, that are used on train stations or to help uh, people with disabilities and so on. Right. So there is a sense that there's a sort of service or sort of like respectful service aspect to it. Now, I think the flip side of this and this sort of goes back to the corporation sort of capturing or the organization capturing the agency of the users is that the respect, the kind of respect that they imagine, you know, entails being respectful to certain people, right? And that means that you're not necessarily respectful to others. You mm -hmm. don't really care about or you don't even really think about uh, people who may have like radically different experiences than your own or may come from a different background or, or something like this. Uh, so, you know, people experience and feel respect and feel respected in many different ways. But um, the researchers don't necessarily uh, have that broad a notion mm. of respect. They have one that works for them. Yeah. Right? They come from relatively privileged backgrounds. Yes. And so they have certain norms of respectful behavior mm. that mm. they, you know, have learned in school or learned at their companies or learned in their families that they have. And these are the ones that feel natural to them and that they build into their technologies. Right. Mm. But these aren't the way that people, you know, respect 
each other in even in other situations in in Japan. Yeah. Like, like there are different norms about how to speak or what you can say depending yes. on the region inside of Japan. Mm. Right. Or you know there are lots of like etiquette around polite forms of speech in Japanese. And these are tied in with standardized forms of Japanese, but there are yeah. other polite forms in other languages or in other dialects, yeah. rather, in Japan that don't match up with that, right? But when a, a robot talks respectfully or, or a computer system speaks respectfully, it uses that standardized language, right? And, you know, it's in a subtle way sort of saying this is the norm, whereas that, you know, mm -hmm. other uh, regional way of speaking respectfully is sort of out of the ordinary, right? So I think there's a, a, a certain amount of capture that goes on, even though uh, on one level it does sort of place the user or the person first. Mm. So it's it's within a, a very clear um, kind of social system, right? That implies yeah. a certain position. Um, it reminds me of a bit of, um, we had a, um, a person on the podcast, Nick, that was talking about the logic of recommender systems in music. Mm -hmm. and taste, right? So we ended up talking a bit about the uh, taste and how is taste defined and uh, what does it mean from your own social and um, class perspective to a certain extent. Um, and it sounds very similar to uh, what you are saying, right? Because you, it's, it's respect, but it's embedded within a very clear class system. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. I think you're talking about Nick Seaver. Yes, right? exactly. At uh, Tuft. Yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, what he says about um, these music recommendation mm. systems, I think is very, you know, it, it resonates well with what I'm saying here, right? Yeah. The machines learn behavior. They try to anticipate behavior, but the behaviors that they try to anticipate yeah. come from a very situated, specific, you know, class or social or mm. cultural background. So what does it say about, you know, um, the ethics of developing something like that? Because one interesting thing about, you know, depending on the position that you have on class systems, like class is constantly redefined and reshaped. Um, so if you embed that type of thing in a, in a machine, how would that know how to change itself or evolve itself um, and being shaped by the society in which it stays? I think, well, it's it's like... Many other types of relationships, in a way, right? So, you know, if you are a friend, an acquaintance, or a family member with another person, you can have one idea about what that relationship is, and that may or may not correspond exactly with the idea that the other person has for that relationship, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, actually, we never quite have... We never, our understandings never quite match up. So we're always having to sort of correct each other or recalibrate our expectations and recalibrate our behaviors when we're interacting with somebody else. And as a result of that, the relationship changes over time. Or, you know, one person, especially if they have a certain amount of power, they can clamp down and say, no, this is how we're going to, this is our relationship. This is how we have to interact. And so I'm not going to listen to you if you do that or say this yeah. or something like that, right? But there's like a certain amount of play or ambivalence inside any relationship that allows both for that clamping down and for this sort of shift. And I think the same holds for technology, mm -hmm. right? You know, the more powerful or the more widespread 
or the more ubiquitous or the more, you know, intuitive yeah. and invisible the technology becomes, yeah. the more it can sort of, I think, exercise this power or control over uh, how it relates with people. But at the same time, I think, you know, people aren't 100% determined by their relationship with a technology, right? Relationships always exist in and among other relationships, as I was saying before. Yes, yes. So it's, you know, these inter relationships can like interfere with each other. And I think, you know, out of that interference, you can get people who may be powerless, right, uh, uh, to, you know, radically shift, you know, yeah. what a technology can do or is, you know, they can remix it or they can like destroy it or they can, yeah. you know, retool it or reverse engineer it uh, or so on. Um, and so I think these possibilities are inherent. Now, I think when it comes to the designers, one thing that, you know, I think one of the ethical sort of responsibilities is is to ensure that sort of ambivalence and play is never completely shut down, that you sort of respectful of technology as a relationship and of the other relationships in which that technology is sort of embedded and how these things sort of might, you know, uh, affect each other, right? Mm -hmm. How, you know, yeah. the relationship that a person has with a machine might affect their relationships with others or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I think this sort of reflexive sort of, uh, uh, sort of, you know, uh, sort of reflexive awareness of, uh, this uh, that relationships sort of evolve yeah. in in uh, interaction with each other is mm -hmm. is an important thing for technologies to have. Yeah, I wonder are they so advanced to be able to do that? Um, I mean, and I'm just thinking of two different examples right now. I remember seeing an advertising in in Japan. Um, of a piece of technology that was a kind of like a home assistant that the advertising basically said that that home assistant is actually helping you overcome your loneliness and being like your friend at home that knows, you know, knows when you are coming home from work, knows what to tell you, knows how to talk to you. And it implies a certain level of intimacy and familiarity um, that I have never seen somebody, for example, like Alexa being able to offer. And at the second part i've read this article about intelligent homes and they were talking in this article about intelligent homes that um the techno alexa right now is not developed advanced enough capabilities to be able to intuitively know when you are hungry or when you are thirsty or when you are cold or sick and and connect the technology inside the house to be able to give you that seamlessly you know so yeah I'm 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 just thinking like how do they manage in the pan in Japan if they manage to um build in that that thing inside that machine that allows it to seamlessly work with you in your life. So they're not that advanced. Right? <laughs> I think uh I was actually talking to somebody in Japan yeah. during my last trip. There's an engineer and he was saying like Google and Amazon mm -hmm. are so far ahead of everyone else technologically that it's like you know he sometimes wonders what he's doing. Oh. So they're not super advanced in that way. But at the same time, the, the way they approach it is they don't have – the technology doesn't have to be advanced in that way in order to feel intuitive or in order for it to display that respect. So like this toilet seat, right, is – it's a sensor and a switch, right? It doesn't need to be smarter than that. But mm – -hmm. For some people, uh, like me, it's uh, 
you know, we end up interpreting it within this sort of respect framework, right? Um, there are other things like uh, uh, there's a technology, uh, a small robot, which is supposed to make conversations flow more smoothly and make people sort of uh, feel closer to each other. And it's just a robot that detects who's talking. So there's two humans talking in this robot. And it's a robot that just detects who's talking, tries to make eye contact with them, and then nods every so often. And it doesn't understand what that person is saying. And it doesn't understand anything about the conversation. But it's just sending this like very simple social cue to that person. And, uh, you know, they've done tests and, and experiments with this. And it turns out, you know, some people actually feel like the conversation went better when that robot is there compared to when it's not, right? So it's it's not advanced, but it's sort of like filling a particular, it's still able to do this like very simple function in a way that's very meaningful and mm -hmm. significant to, to the people who are, you know, in the same room for it. And I think yeah. um, something that the, the researchers I, I work with a lot say is that, you know, humans aren't actually that... Uh, advanced. They're not doing very much. They're just doing a lot of very simple things at the same time. And so if you can hook into, or if you can do a technology or robot that does a few of those simple things well enough, then you're like, got a, a large chunk, you know, you well not a large chunk, but you've got a good chunk of, uh, of what you need to make yeah. a technology feel intuitive and feel natural and feel, you know, respectful. And, and would you say from your experience that social scientists can contribute to, to that understanding? Um, I think so. I think, um, like if you think, if you, if you start from the point where you think of a technology as a kind of relationship in mm -hmm. amongst these other relationships, then, you know, social sciences, whether it's anthropology or something else, you know, it's, it's sort of all about dealing with relationships and figuring out what relationships people have yeah. and what they do and, you know, exactly this question of how do the different relationships affect each other. I think that's what uh, social scientists and anthropologists do. Um, and I think uh, what one thing I think that anthropologists can do especially is, is go out and say, look at all of these different kinds of relationships that people have in yeah. this society or at that time or in this culture and how different it is from what we have here, but it's still sort of within the realm of human capability, right? It can look so different, but you know, there's always the potential that it's possible for us too, right? And I think so in that way, it provides models uh, or ways of thinking about possible kinds of relationships that mm -hmm. technologies could enact. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, possible ways of thinking about the effects that a technology yeah. can have. And I think, you know, that's one of the ways in, in you know, in, in sort of uh, helping along this reflection mm -hmm. about what a technology is and is doing. I think there's a lot there in the social sciences that can, that can uh, really sort of expand the perspectives that people have about that. Yeah. And particularly in Japan, have you seen social scientists being useful in, in breaking that wall of um, exclusivity to a specific um, social group that you were mentioning about earlier? To an extent, I wouldn't say it's, it's standard or normal. And I think social scientists, and this is true to an extent anywhere, uh, social scientists get... Uh, 
treated as instruments, like how do we measure this per, this effect that this technology has on a person? Well, we should get a psychologist or a sociologist to help us with that. There's a lot of that. Um, but uh, in the vein that I'm talking about, I think it, it sort of occurs along different lines and not in terms of like anthropologists or social scientists going in and telling engineers mm -hmm. or necessarily even working with them directly to say, you know, this is what more we could do. But in terms of collaborating with engineers uh, who, you know, engineers themselves make these realizations about relationships all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's why a lot of them end up, you know, getting involved in art projects or, or writing philosophy or writing texts about uh, robots in society. Right. There, there's these um, uh, moments from within engineering and within this kind of research where these same kind of reflections bubble up. And I think there is a lot of crossover between social scientists and artists and philosophers and so on and engineers and scientists who are. Uh, sort of making that realization, those reflections in their own way. And there's a lot of productive crossover there. So you'll see like quite interesting and vibrant communities that involve like an anthropologist and a complex system scientist and a robot engineer and an artist mm -hmm. and an architect and a, you know, uh, a media person and so on getting together to think about, you know, what, where, what are we doing here yeah. and what's happening and what are the possibilities? So I think in that way, there's a bit of a, of intervention that mm -hmm. social scientists are doing. But I, I recognize like this is also something that you see popping up across the US yeah. or North America or, or Europe as well. And, and what do you say would, would be like some um, um, of the key successes to generating that multidisciplinarity and to get them to work together? What brings them together? What ties them together in a way that, that is productive to the whole team? I think um, it often starts actually maybe with this sort of instrumental use. So the engineers are like, we got to figure out what this is doing to people and measure it. Or we've got to fill out this like ethics column on a grant application or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or we have to show our universities that we're more interdisciplinary. You know, who do you know? I think it can start like that. Um, but... Uh, I think it can uh, – so one example I'm thinking of is this uh, robot engineer in Japan who uh, named Hiroshi Ishiguro who was famous for making a robot copy of himself. Oh, wow. So he built this – like a simple android that looks exactly like him and can move and, and speak kind of. So I made this and he made a couple of other uh, – with like three or four other androids that uh, are modeled on other people. So this is, you know, he thinks of it as a communication tool. It's sort of like next generation Skype kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So um, he runs into a very famous playwright named uh, Hirata Oriza, in, uh, who's based in Tokyo, but now in also in Osaka, who's written all sorts of plays. And they decide, well, why don't we... Well, can, first, Ishiguro asks him, can we use robots in a stage play? And Oriza uh, goes, well, let's see. So he goes off and writes a play. And, uh, it, and so these, uh, two or three of these plays have been produced. And they've toured in Japan and, and in several other countries around the world. And if you go to one of these, 
like it's it's very interesting because it's using these actual robots and they play characters who are also robots but you have robots like reflecting on you know there's one play about a robot who's like lost the will to work he's like depressed and doesn't want to do anything and barely leaves the house and his sort of human masters are are really like caring for him is he okay you know maybe mm-hmm. we can go shopping together today which you know it's not a big thing maybe we can you know just go to the supermarket and that can be a first step or something so they're really about like caring and you know if you think of a, a you know housework robot ordinarily it's like if your Roomba dies yeah Roomba stops working not vacuuming then you like send it to the repairs or you throw it out but the the play shows these people sort of like really trying to understand what's happened with this robot and what uh, he's feeling um, that makes him not want to work anymore and you know in some ways it's an allegory for people who have sort of fallen between the cracks of you know capitalist society like Japan but it's also like you know thinking about what kinds of uh, sort of non-master-slave relations yeah. could exist between humans and machines. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's it's exactly doing this kind of reflection about what kind of relationship do people have with technology, right? And then, so what does it, what happens when we put this in a family? It's kind of this imaginative uh, exercise in, in exactly this kind of reflection. Mm. So then the technology itself is a reflection or, you know, how it, how it ends up being manifested in society is at the end a reflection of how that society values technology and relationships, right? Yeah, and in, in, in large part, right. But there's always this sort of interference and interaction, right, that people don't necessarily value robots for the reasons they think they value them. Mm-hmm. Like it could be about respect rather than I just want to have a comfortable toilet. Yeah. And I think the, this play is showing, you know, what else, what else. They're trying to sort of excavate that and bring that to the surface that maybe, you know, we are maybe, maybe having a robot in the family changes the family yeah. Right? yeah. instead of just uh, being a thing that helps cook or helps mm-hmm. clean up. So um, I was thinking, have you seen this type of relationship with technology and how technology is a relationship and the respect embedded in relationships with technology and that relationship of agency and power? Have you seen it manifesting anywhere else outside Japan? Or have you seen Japan influence the more global discourses around technology and relationships? I think um, there are other examples like say in the States, mm. it's not as though the technologies there are uh, uh, actively disrespectful, but they operate sort of on a different notion of what an ideal relationship is Yes, yes. Um, that, you know, diverges from Japan. So you could have, uh, there's this guy, Steve Mann at the University of Toronto, who uh, has been wearing like a computer and goggles uh, like almost every day for the past 20 or 30 years or something like that. Like he calls himself the, the world's first cyborg. And he's very aware that these technologies are relationships that people have with the outer world, right? But he thinks of the respectful relationship as like protecting as much as possible sort of the dignity mm-hmm. and the, the, the uh, independence of the individual, right? So he's come up with things like goggles that will shield you from any information that you don't want to know. 
right? That they'll block out all advertisements that might be around you or something like that. So it's all about protecting sort of the core individual, which, you know, it's a kind of respect, but it's a, it's a, it's of a very different kind than you have happen in Japan. Um, in terms of how Japan might be affecting, uh, global discourses, um, to be like honest, I don't see it traveling that far out of Japan mm. in spite of, you know, this, this th uh, stage production touring. Um, I, I, I don't think it travels and I, I actually don't think it travels well because it's hard to just pick up one relationship out of a, a group of them and mm. transplant it somewhere else. Right. There have been attempts to do that, but you know, it, it, doesn't always sort of work out in the ways that, uh, uh, say, the scientists in Japan want it to work out. And so they, you know, sometimes fade away. I, I feel like the Japanese sort of tech community, especially right now, is kind of siloed off. And, and uh, it's sort of like an, an island. Uh, well, it is on an <laughs> island, but it's it, the, the circulations and, and transfers of knowledge between Japan and, say, the U.S. aren't very active. And where they are happening, they tend to be sort of um, uh, not very transformative mm -hmm. for either side. And yeah. there are lots of historical and yeah. institutional and cultural reasons for this. But I think um, it's, it's uh, you know, something that's, if it's going to happen, it's still sort of over the horizon. Yeah. Is it different with um, other countries of, in Asia? You know, I don't know. I don't know. I think uh, Japan in general is sort of looking yeah. inwards in a way that it didn't even like 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, countries like, like China, for instance, or Korea, mm. which I think has a much bigger presence yes. on the world sort of tech stage, yeah. um, are doing it differently and in some ways sort of more visibly mm. than Japan is. And like people talk about Japan as sort of a Galapagos of technology. They call uh, cell phones, for instance, that work in Japan and developed in Japan. And they might be great, but they, they're you know not like smartphones like the iPhone. They call them Galapagos phones. And so there's this conscious sense that, you know, some things stop at the shoreline for Japan. Yeah. There's there's not much that uh, uh, goes outwards. Hmm. Okay, that's that's that's. I, I think I could talk to you about Japan the whole day. I have so many more <laughs> questions, but um, we're kind of nearing the end. And I I know I want to ask you one question, which has to do especially with those young people um, that are not necessarily young that are. In the anthropology field, considering of working or transitioning to the business field, and in making that reflection, right? Should I, should I stay in academia right now? Should I try to find a space in business? What would you tell them that would kind of help them make that reflection? My answer to that would be, um, and this is like only it it only maybe works if you're privileged enough, right, yeah. to have. You know, to be able to, for, for sort of this business uh, or academia sort of choice, uh, to pose itself in this way. But I think um, for me especially, it's, I'm an anthropologist now, but 
what's carried me through uh, all of my training and research and you know how I tend to think about things going forward is not necessarily like how I want to understand something, but what is it that I want to understand? So, you know, I've always been sort of a geek about science and technology, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the fun for me of doing field work was just getting to see these toys, basically, and play with these toys. And also, like, I'm always, you know, anyway interested in how are the people who are making these things thinking and what do they do day by day, right? Like, mm -hmm. the, the, the sort of crafts, cra the craft of it is really fascinating too. Right? Now, it so happens that, you know, because of all the, you know, a bunch of different things sort of coming together for me, that I ended up in an anthropology program mm -hmm. and sort of anthropology became the way that I've chosen to look at this for the last, you know, 10 years and at least for a few years in, into the future. But I think that I could have easily uh, carried that over into, you know, uh, a career in business, right? Where I can still be like, you know, I, I still can interact with people practicing this craft, or I can still sort of uh, play with these toys. And I think, you know, in my case, it was it was these toys, this technology that's kept my interest, or the science behind it. And I think for me, um, it, you know, in making, if I were faced with that kind of decision, I'd be like, you know. If I can do that in anthropology, that's great. If I can do that in somewhere else in academia, that's great. But can I do that in a company or a different kind of organization or working for the government? Yeah. And I think there are places where you can do that. And so I, I think uh, I, I would sort of suggest to people who are, are faced with this kind of decision, like what is it that you could carry your interest mm. for 10 years yeah. in that way? And then say, is this business going to do it? Or is this discipline going to do yeah. it for me? The, the space of the school, the space of the university, um, is it, does it have, let's say, a responsibility in guiding you or in helping you navigate that understanding? I think so. And I, I don't know whether it's institutionalized or not. Mm -hmm. But like in my case, I think the relationships I've had with supervisors over the years have helped me think in that way. Right. Um, and and uh, so I, I think this, well, I guess the lesson is choose your supervisor very <laughs> carefully. Um, but I think uh, in, in these sort of informal everyday interactions that you have with other students or with faculty, those are the places where you're going to figure out mm. uh, and and be able to you know get help in thinking about what works and yeah. where you know what you're doing at the moment mm. is going to lead you. Yeah, and, and you know what I like about your example with the toys and the interest in the toys is that that could also be a potential bridge to get comfortable in a business space because that's a point of intersection between fields. It's not just a focus on the technique of getting there, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When I, I think about interdisciplinarity or multidisciplinarity, mm. I always have to like start with the object yes. that I'm thinking about. <laughs> I can't be like, you know, 
here's anthropology and yes. here's polit political yeah. science and here's philosophy and here's engineering and mm. sort of what can we do? Yeah. I think it's like, here's a robot and yes. let's, you know, see what can happen with that robot mm. or something like that. Yeah. So I think, you know, the toys yes. are inherently interdisciplinary. Yes. And, and uh, yeah. you know, it makes sense then that they can be this crossover point, as you said. Yeah, and that can help kind of uh, smoothen that um, integration into that new environment and understand the business side uh, maybe better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Grant, this has been great. Um do you have any other question, Angel? Or we are we've run out of time. We've run. Out, I know we've run out of time. <laughs> but you, you have been just, yeah. I just could sit here with a coffee and listen to you the whole day. Uh, so thank you so much, uh, Grant, for everything. No, thanks for getting in touch. Yes, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.